Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Hey, lots of good news today. Uh, we got GitHub launch support for Hex in tracking and reporting security advisories. Most recently, I think GitHub released uh, the, the support for parsing modules so you can like jump between code and, and calls and stuff. So that's that was pretty cool. So that was a while ago. And this week they launched security advisory support. So it doesn't say outright on the blog post, and we'll have a link to that blog post, by the way. But I think this will impact the dependency graph and the dependabot alerts. So we'll we'll see how that actually evolves in, in their product. But really happy to see that. I, I remember seeing the repository like a while ago. It was just not being leveraged in their product. So I'm glad to see the announcement and I'm excited for it. That's pretty cool. So I assume that means if I am a maintainer and I become aware of a problem, I need to submit that there is a known vulnerability or maybe actually people who aren't the maintainers can also submit that there's a vulnerability. I'm not sure. Like who does the the submitting to say, oh, there's a problem here so that everyone gets notified. Yeah. And they have a whole page that like outlines the process for how to submit vulnerabilities. And it's been a little bit since I I read it. So I might be a little bit inaccurate here, but it is submitted to the repository and then the maintainers have to like vet it, review it and then approve that. Oh, yeah, this is actually a a vulnerability. And that's what ends up getting put into the database, tagged with the affected versions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Something else that's been making headlines is the Stack Overflow developer survey results. There's a couple of highlights you wanted to talk about. One is Elixir was number two on the loved language category, as well as Phoenix being the number one loved web framework. So pretty cool stuff to check out there. Go give it a read if you haven't. We'll drop a link in the show notes and we'll also drop a link to a tweet from Jose. Jose had some things to talk about and things that we could learn from it. So definitely some interesting results there. I'm really excited for the results. That was my first reaction was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Elixir is like getting some respect, (laughs) you know, like this is great. And Phoenix being number one, that was also that was great. But I'd like to dig into the data a little bit more. And I'm not positive that all of that is wonderful news, though. It's great to see it. That's just going to generate interest, I think. But I don't know. We'll, I'll have to save my thoughts and, and look at the data and, and make sure, you know, confirm some feelings there. But what do you guys think? Yeah, I think there's definitely more we could talk about. Because I think when you actually look at some of the results, the numbers are a different sizes for all these different languages. And so it's about percentage of relationship of the data. So it's it's not an obvious like, oh, like it's the most loved language in the world by population numbers. So it's it's interesting. I see. So it's like of all the people who love Elixir, they pretty much all use the Phoenix framework and love it. Yep. It's like, well, there's not really an alternative. So like, of course. But they don't hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't hate it. But it doesn't mean it's the the most of all other frameworks on the face of the planet. It's a subset of the data. There's certainly, I think we could uh, dig into that a little bit more and, and kind of uh, share our thoughts on what we think this tells us. And next up, Alex Kutmos and Hugo Barauna are working on an upcoming book. I think we might have mentioned it before, but it's it's currently in beta. It's called an Elixir Patterns book. So it's about teaching different coding patterns. And as part of that, Alex is adding a PR to the Kino project. And that Kino is Elixir's charting library that's most commonly used in Livebook. And his work is adding the ability to visually render supervision trees with Mermaid, which is also a ASCII-based way of building boxes and arrows and connecting things in Livebook. And he intends to use this in his upcoming book when he's teaching about supervision trees. So it's just really cool because I already think Livebook is a great tool for teaching and playing with Elixir. And adding a feature like this just makes it even more accessible when you're teaching some of those deeper OTP concepts. And it's very cool. It's it's going to be part of the Kino library. All right. Also up, uh, Frank Hunleth of Nerves Project fame announced that Nerves now has support for the RISC-V Mango Pi. The required package is published to Hex, so we'll have some links to that. The Mango Pi, if you haven't heard of it, is a single board mini computer, kind of like the normal Raspberry Pi, that provides almost the same features offered by the previous Raspberry Pi Zero W, so that's Zero Wireless model. It's produced by a different company. It's about $20. 
And so the work by Frank brings nerve support to this other hardware option that people might uh, want to play with, with really scaled down like edge devices. So you might be wondering, Risk Five. what is Risk Five? That's a big part of this Mango Pi thing. What is, what is Risk Five? We can talk a lot more about it, but the, the TLDR is that it's an open source processor instruction set. It's very similar to ARM. We've also been talking a lot about ARM lately, mostly thanks to Apple because of their new Apple Silicon stuff, the M1 chip and all that, which is using ARM. RISC-V is actually part of ARM. That's what the R in ARM stands for is, is RISC-V or, or maybe just RISC. But RISC-V is the open source hardware project involved with that. So it's getting a lot of attention in FOSS community because the kind of uh, corporate interest in things like, well, the x86 chipset that we've all had for decades now, and then also more recently ARM with uh, phones and uh, Apple. We'll drop a link if you want to learn more about RISC-V, but really cool to see that happening and that Nerves is on the forefront of supporting that kind of stuff. Next up, there's a Gleam update. Louis Pilfold, the creator and maintainer of Gleam, which is a statically typed language that runs on the Beam, got a Gleam application running on Fly.io. This work came because Gleam 0.22 includes a new command to prepare Gleam applications for deployment. So he wrote a blog post about it, which we can drop in the show notes. So this is really exciting. Fly doesn't pay me to say this, but they should. Fly is awesome. We've been using it in production. So that's a win for Gleam for sure. I think this is kind of about like a mixed release style, package it up and prepare it for deployment. And and I think that's what they're really showcasing here, and which I think is a great uh, next step for helping people deploy their Gleam applications to production. Yeah. I, I mean, when that happened for Elixir, like deployment changed. So that's great. And next up, Explorer version 0.2.0 was released. So recently we talked with Chris Granger in episode 104 about Explorer. Explorer is a data analysis tool for Elixir that lets you do spreadsheet-like calculations and operations in your Elixir applications. Honestly, of all the NX libraries that are currently available, Explorer is the one that I think regular developers like me who don't know about machine learning can already get started with. That's an exciting thing for me. And so just a couple updates on some of the new things. It got a little faster. So they were tuning the Rust NIF builds using some different compiler flags and things as they were kind of settling in and getting it ironed out. And because it uses Rustler pre-compiled, you don't have to worry about any of that build rusting coding stuff. So that's nice. And the API is also improved to better match the other NX libraries and interfaces. And this release does a lot more towards the lazy API that he talked with us about in his interview. And for very big data frames where performance is really important and for functions you will reuse over and over, the lazy API is much more performant. I kind of think of that like how streams works with Elixir, where you're passing a lot of data through a whole series of functions. You can do one at a time, apply this function on this whole set of data and then apply this next function on this whole set of data or do streams where you're pulling it through in a much more performant way when you're dealing with large data. And I think that's kind of like the idea of how this might be implemented, even if it's not implemented that way. Also up, rebar 3.19.0 was released. <laughs> rebar, by the way, is is the, the Erlang packager, much like Mix is for, for Elixir. So Erlang uh, gets some support for OTP25 and rebar. Uh, and another feature here is adding the dash dash offline option and the rebar offline environment variable. So I find that pretty helpful for like CI environments if you didn't want it to reach out to, you know, the internet for, for some reason. You're, you're coming with all of the all the downloaded artifacts for those error gapped environments. Pretty cool update. So I'm glad to see that that out there. If you're in Erlang, better go check that out. And last up, Jose Valim announced a new initiative called Research with Elixir. We'll drop a link in the show notes, but it's all in Portuguese. The goal here is to connect companies using Elixir to universities to finance and support research through master's and PhD scholarships. He shared that four companies so far are actually helping to fund this research. One is Dashbit. All the funding goes directly to the research, and unsurprisingly, the other companies appear to be Brazilian. Yeah, I just liked how this showed that Elixir really isn't centered around one country or language. You know, you could think because of the Erlang roots, it would be Sweden, or that because there's a lot of developers in the U.S., it's U.S.-centric, but it's not. It's everywhere. It's Brazil, it's Poland, and Europe. What I think is really cool about that is just highlights how we really are an international community. And I think we're all better for it. And that's it for the news. 
Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Sam Aaron. Sam, welcome to the show. Hi there. Well, this is awesome because, Sam, you have been doing really cool stuff with Ruby and just computer audio for years now. I remember when I first came to the Ruby community and I learned about Sonic Pi project and how, wow, I could live code Ruby stuff and play with that and make sound and then comment out and comment things and, and dynamically change stuff. I was like super impressed with that. And then more recently, I heard how you're doing more with Elixir. And I'm really excited to talk to you about what you're doing, what your involvement is, how this is impacting anything that you've already been working on. But before we jump into all that, I'd love to hear more about you. What can you tell us about where you live and what kind of work you're doing? Where I live, I've just moved actually recently from Cambridge. Actually, before that, I was in Amsterdam. Before that, I was in Newcastle. And when I lived in Newcastle, I was living right next to beautiful mountains and hills in Scotland and in the west of England and used to go walking every single weekend. And then when I moved to Amsterdam to work as a programmer, of course, beautiful for cycling, but no hills. And then Cambridge, uh, where I was a uh, research for a while, uh, and then where the Sonic Pi project, which we're talking about now, span out of, also no no hills. And so when when we needed to expand and thought about where we could move again, we've we only just moved just just this Christmas. One of the sort of criteria sort of had a multidimensional problem of where where where's best to move our entire family. And yeah, hills was definitely high on the list. And so we're right next to the hills in Sheffield, where there's uh, there's what's called the Peak District here in the UK, and it's beautiful. So I try and get out there as much as possible. When I'm not walking in the Peter Street, I'm programming. Uh, and I'm programming on, on this project called Sonic Pi, which is a live coding music synthesizer for everyone, really. So it's a, a particularly uh, focused on education, but also on... Um, I'm professional musicians, so I'm happy to talk about them more later. But in terms of where I am and where I live, uh, yeah, so it's it's Sheffield now, and I'm super happy to be here. Uh, and my job really is currently hacking on this project. I managed to somehow find a financial way forward after leaving university. So it started off as a, a as a postdoc project at the University of Cambridge, uh, and now it's spun off to a, a, an individual thing. Uh, and so yeah, so I'm funding myself somehow. And I'm happy to talk about that because I think it's, it's really interesting to talk about how individuals might fund open source projects, especially on their own. Yeah. And so I, I spend all day hacking and hiking, really. <laughs> Do you hack while you hike? Great combination. <laughs> that's, well, that's a very good question. I think actually, um, even the idea of allowing myself, especially when I used to, 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 to work, uh, to go out for a walk during the work hours, it took a lot of uh, bravery. And a lot of that was figuring out and realizing that actually, yeah, you do do significant hacking uh, whilst you're walking. Your brain obviously thinks a completely different way. It's able to think, think about the problems from different angles and perspectives, particularly when you're not putting your forethought on it and just walking and looking at the trees uh-huh. and you've got a problem loaded up in your brain. I think it's actually really, really, well, at least for me, certainly, I find it's an amazing tool for helping me lever out sort of open problems into smaller parts and figure out where I can particularly tackle it so I can go back to the desk and and hit it hard. Now, I didn't have the pleasure of being able to go take my walks out into nature. Uh, When I was working downtown, I would just go for a a coffee walk, really. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, those were like really valuable, (laughs) much more valuable than I would realize, right? As I'm getting up from the desk, I feel like I'm giving up on the problem, right? I've got that that attitude of giving up on this. I'm tired of it. I'm going to go take a walk. I'm going to get myself some coffee. And then by the time yeah. I'm walking back, I th- I have like another path forward to try, you know, on on my on the problem I was working on. It's 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 astonishing how how much effect it really does have. Just just walking away from the problem. I have this uh, idea of hack and hike, where um, the, I want to get a group of people. We're going to go for a hike all together and talk about the problem we might solve, and we maybe go to like a bothy or a, a small hut somewhere. We go open our laptops, spend a few hours coding the things, and then walk back to to where we started and and sort of debrief and and uh, and figure out what what worked and what didn't work, and do that in a regular sort of cycle. I feel would be a really interesting way to develop together as a team. Sounds like a fun uh, meetup type or something you could try out. <laughs> I've actually wanted to force myself onto a train and go on like a week long train ride with no internet and see what I could come up with. 
And my first thought was like, is that to get away from the kids? <laughs> no, it's, it's to get away from the distractions, right? Like, yeah, oh, the distractions. That's right. Not the kids. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'll give you like a time window as well. You'll know you've got that train ride. So what can you do by the end of it? So it gives you a focus. How long have you been using Elixir? I'm, I'm curious of where, where is Sonic Pi and Elixir or Erlang cross over here. In my earliest introduction to Sonic Pi, I thought this was an all Ruby thing. And then late, way later, I learned that there was that's that wasn't true. Tell me a little bit about your history with with uh, Elixir and how that got into Sonic Pi. I think Sonic Pi is a, is a strange project, and I think that um, uh, obviously you don't have much time to look at new things. And when something whizzes by, you sort of see it from a very sort of a thin perspective, unless you really go, "Ooh, what's this?" and you spend time looking at it. So if you if you've seen it as an education thing, you think it's probably just something for kids in schools. But obviously, it's as, as, as uh, really want to sort of emphasise, especially going forwards, it's fresh or musical instrument that the DJs use on stage live. And similarly, people think, oh, it's just a Ruby project. And the, the DSL is definitely built in Ruby. Ruby is a really nice language uh, for writing uh, a flexible sort of mini languages within it, sort of so-called domain-specific languages. But Ruby was really chosen as the as a frontal language for Sonic Pi because I had been a professional uh, Ruby programmer before, so I was fluent in it. Uh, I knew that it was capable of expressing the kinds of things I wanted to express in terms of the DSL form. It was similar enough to Python, so that it was sort of past the teacher test of why is it not Python? Because that's really all teachers seem to want. But I, also, I the original project I had essentially two weeks really to build the first version because I had to in three months the whole project was to develop a piece of software to engage kids in computer science especially the the new UK computer science curriculum but in addition to building the software I had to find a teacher collaborate with them develop a scheme of work use this new software to see if it could help teach the, the, the computer science curriculum and assess it in three months so, so that's a super small period of time so I gave myself two weeks to build the first version of Sonic Pi to, to allow myself to at least have the time to, to find the teacher and then iterate the, the, the development so of course I'm going to use a language I'm fluent in already uh, and also Sonic Pi has derivations from Clojure um, and it, actually the first version of Sonic Pi was attempting to be Clojure but because it had to run on the Raspberry Pi uh, at number, the first iteration of that computer uh, at the time it this, the jvm support was really nascent and, and and not particularly sophisticated and and my code code wasn't particularly efficient and it took seven minutes for the namespaces to boot so that, that wasn't going to happen so i was attempting to to port uh ideas for my old well the, that current project called overtone which is a, a, a live coding music system uh, enclosure to the Raspberry Pi. And so that didn't work. So I ended up building something new, which was based off Ruby. So it's really, it's a Ruby project. But it's important to recognize that's just, a, that was just a language choice just to build the interface. The, the, the system is, is lot, got lots of languages built into it and different components and different processes. So it's almost like a, a mini microservices architecture. In the same way, a, a web service might, or website might be backed by Nginx serving the web pages. Sonic Pi has a, something called uh, Super Collider, which is an audio synthesis engine in the background. Uh, so all those synthesizers are designed in code and have to be implemented such that they compile down to little uh, Super Collider synth defs, which get executed on the audio engine. So there's that component. Obviously, there's a Ruby language component. There's a GUI, which is another separate component that's implemented in C++. And that's using the Qt, or Qt, I think it's called, graphics toolkit, uh, which is cross-platform, which is how we got to get into a position to supporting not just a Raspberry Pi, which was originally developed for, but also Windows and Mac and, and Linux in general, with, with some um, caveats, of course, with, as there always is with Linux. Yeah, so it's actually Sonic Pi has many languages, and the the Erlang component was implemented uh, quite a while ago now, sort of five five six years ago now, uh, as a, a a way of of starting to to manage the problem of of I/O in general and building an I/O server, so getting information into Sonic Pi, so people might be pressing buttons or twiddling knobs or pushing dials, or they might be uh, receiving network messages off the internet. Um, and wanting to to convert those into to musical events, and so all that stuff was implemented into in, in uh, Erlang. And also another critical thing was the timing of sending out events. So you not just want to send out an event immediately. Often, with especially with a musical system like Sonic Pi, it's it's all it's all really about implementing a, a sort of a a concurrent scheduler, which is well timed, so that you can sort of send a stream of events but sort of park them 
And so that at a time T, when you want the actual drum to play or you want the light to flash maybe at the same time as the drum, then you then send that event, so that that, um, that event off, assuming that the, the destination itself doesn't have a scheduler to be able to schedule, which most systems don't implement their own internal schedulers. So, yeah, so Sonic Pi turned out to be a, a, an I.O. system and all that stuff was implemented in Erlang. Uh, and originally uh, the scheduler part was implemented by Joe Armstrong, who found an interest in what I was doing. Since then, obviously Joe unfortunately has passed away and so he's no longer on the phone to sort of sort of for support. It's a real tragedy. And so and also I, I'm I've been watching the Elixir community for a long time, being very interested, but I've avoided sort of spending time focusing on it because I felt that in my um time really steeped in closure, I eschewed and ignored I think the virtues of, of properly grokking and learning Java, thinking I'm learning like a more sophisticated language or it's more my language that I want to focus on. And Java is just this other language which happens to be the primary language for the JVM, but I'm using this more exciting language for the JVM. So why should I bother learning Java? But it turns out, obviously, whenever you get an error in Clojure, it spits at you a lot of Java. <laughs> so it seemed to me like that was that turned out to be something I should have fixed earlier on. And so before learning Elixir, I really thought it was important to learn uh, Erlang properly so that when I started to understand Elixir and and look past the sort of similarities of the syntax with Ruby, because I think it's only a very um, thin veneer of similarities between Ruby, then that's the sort of syntax. I'd hopefully be able to understand all the semantics of what's actually happening on the beam. And I think that that's really uh, been, at least for me, it was a good strategy. And so now I now I, um, I I see Elixir understand it much more. I see its potential, and I see its potential for implementing, especially uh, interfaces, and also potentially for inter- in implementing the whole language that's in Ruby currently in Elixir. Because to make the the language work, and this is another thing to talk about as well, which I th- it could be very interesting. All the timing stuff I had to implement, all, and also to do it concurrently because. Music tends to have this very concurrent nature, and the children wanted to play the drums at the same time as the bass. And so I had to, I had to implement all this weird concurrent stuff in Ruby just to, to, to make that simple, which obviously the Beam has much more sophisticated and well-engineered versions of. So I think actually a whole ton will translate really beautifully to Elixir and to allow me to delete a whole ton of code in the process and have the result be more efficient and better engineered because obviously you're, you're leveraging or, or leverage all the amazing personnels that have gone into the Beam and, and all the, the Erlang and Elixir libraries that I'll be uh, uh, relying upon. Yeah, one of the things I thought was just amazing is just that, you know, you had Joe Armstrong who found the project or found interest in it and got involved and, and helped work out some of that initial IO scheduling aspect, which I think is very cool. And I think it's also interesting just that you make that point that music is about concurrency. You know, a chord is concurrently playing three different notes or more. Just when we think about concurrency in that way, it's like, yeah, concurrency is, it's everywhere. Everything is happening in parallel. When you have a system that helps model that better, it can be a smoother experience. So that that, that was very insightful. There's actually, a, I think, an interesting story that's correlated to that from Sonic Pi, which is that when the children asked to play the drums at the same time as the bass, so we taught them loops and said they could do a loop of drums and said they could do a loop of bass. And they tried to do two loops at the same time. And this is something that didn't happen once. It happened all the time I gave a workshop. You'd end up with children learning the loops, learning the drums, learning the bass, and want, or learning the guitar samples, or learning a synthesizer sample and wanting to play it with something. They'd want to play multiple things at the same time. And they'd put their hand up and say, how do I play these two loops at the same time? And uh, you, they, you, they can't, because... The Sonic Pi was designed specifically for the UK computer science curriculum uh, for schools. And obviously that uh, concurrency is not on that list of, of things to teach. And so in the early days of Sonic Pi, the answer to the children was was no, you can't, which actually turned out, I observed, to really, I think, put them off and they would end up just being a bit distracted from it and not looking out the window and not that interested. And I remember it felt like, and I really should have said this to one of them, that, that uh, when they asked, hey, hey, can I make the drums play at the same time in the bass? It's like, well, no, you've got to wait till you're 18. Because when you're 18, then you can go to university and then, then you can do computer science there and they'll teach you concurrency. So <laughs> it felt to me like an opportunity to use my uh, interest in the language stuff and domain-specific languages particularly, sort of to, to morph 
the Ruby language into something that actually supported concurrency uh, naturally. And so instead of the loop, which obviously is a, a Ruby sort of construct, uh, Sonic Pi supports something else called the live loop, uh, which is a, just like a loop, but it happens to also run concurrently. And it also happens to uh, coordinate with it with sort of the internal logical clocks, uh, which sort of drive the system into making it really very well timed. And so the threads can play independently, but they can also ensure that they're playing in time with each other. So it's not just because uh, concurrency is I'd like things to happen at the same time. Uh, but music is also in time. So there's like an extra sort of requirement. It's not just... Because obviously if you have four people playing in a band and they're not even considering what each other are doing, you've got very free-form jazz and maybe that's what you want. And you can obviously do that with Sonic Pi, but sometimes you might want to have them coordinate with each other to perhaps play at the same time or tempo or play in the same key or something. Uh, and so, yeah, so having threads that can synchronise in that way was actually a critical thing. So, But also making sure that the, the interface, that the, the language construct I used, was one that the teachers wouldn't realise was concurrency because they wouldn't teach it. So this live loop was just now, I, I just said it's the new name for loop in Sonic Pi. It just sounds cooler. <laughs> <laughs> and so the teachers are teaching loops. They've got this, okay, it's got it's got a funny name, but it's got loop in it. That, that works. Uh, and the kids have got their concurrency so they can play the drums at the same time, the bass. And no one's really any of the wires. No one really even thinks they're doing concurrency. It's just a natural, natural thing for them. There's something I just got to bring up, which is uh, something that I learned from Joe Armstrong's writings some time ago, which is that, you know, the world around us is concurrent. It's parallel. You know, he wasn't necessarily using the term actor, but that's the way we can think about it. Like you think of a band members, you got four or five different members up there and each one is an actor and doing their own like drum loop, like just going through their own little thing while the bassist is doing their own thing. And then I love your, your comparison where they're, they are coordinating with each other. If, if nothing else by sound, but maybe they give each other a look and oh, time for your solo, you know, that kind of coordination between the actors. And that is an interesting way to give that as a education idea, you know, to present that idea. And I think that's just really fun. Yeah, I mean, you actually end up teaching uh, message sending across processes as a way of, of transferring state and sending those kind of uh, cues, I call them in Sonic Pi, sort of cue drums, cue bass. So my sort of, my my bang exclamation mark in Erlang is, is actually, is it an elixir? Is it the same? I, I, my elixir is still very, very nascent, so I'm still learning it. Um, yeah, the, 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 the sending a message to a PID is cue call cue in Sonic Pi. But there's also, I think the, the, the other part is not just be able to send messages to synchronize in that way, but also to be able to, uh, with a musician, you don't just, um, it's not like a before and after relationship, like I haven't got the message I have. There's also, after the message has been sent, there should be some point where you're certain that those the, the, the participants are in the same time sort of space as each other, if that's something you want. So that then the next time that they do a beat, it's at the same time, not not staggered or slightly off. And you would obviously compensate for any message delays and, and jitter and all that kind of stuff. In Elixir, you would consider that as some kind of immutable map with a value, which is the, the logical time for that particular actor. Uh, and then when you're uh, synchronizing, you also share across the, the, the thread barrier, the logical time. So the actor that gets synced with the, with the original actor will inherit the, exactly the same uh, logical time. So when they continue executing, they, they have the same sort of logical starting point. You're not just sending uh, the messages that you, you want to as a, as a user, but you also there's also this underlying sort of synchronization of the system to, to coordinate the time. Talking about all the synchronization of times and, and such and music being such a precise thing, right? Uh, if you're off, you know, milliseconds, it can sound dissonant. I tended to think that Erlang being a soft, real-time guaranteed language wouldn't be a good choice for for sound applications, right? It might be a little bit different in, uh, and it sounds like it is a little bit different in sound production because you're right. There's there's this cadence, right? The beats uh, of of these notes that need to be played together. It's not necessarily I hit the button now. I need to hear it exactly now. It's I hit the button now and I need to hear it on the next beat or start it on or start the loop on the next beat, right? So it's it's not exactly you know hard real time right now. It's 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 scheduled, and so th yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense now. 
There's two interesting, uh, there's a bunch of interesting things to talk about from here. Um, one is that the, the audio stuff in Sonic Pi is all done by Super Collider, which is an, a low-level C++ C system, which has its own scheduler, which is extremely accurate and, and works really, really well. So you just say it, at time T, trigger the synthesizer. At time T plus delta, change its note to something else. And so you can send these events to it in a special little sort of binary format called Open Sound Control, which is a super simple binary format. Uh, and you can you can send these messages either immediately, so as soon as you receive it, sort of enact the action, or you can send it in a, a, what's called an OSC bundle, which contains a timestamp of, of a future timestamp of when you'd like that bundle to be executed. And so that does that extremely well. But what we were missing, actually, uh, certainly in Sonic Pi World, to be able to do the same kind of thing as that, but with external events. So triggering MIDI synthesizers, sending uh, open sound control messages uh, on the internet or uh, to another peer on your local host network, your local network, sorry, or even to localhost to, to, to another app running on your machine. And, and so uh, this is where the Erlang part came in, is that, that we implemented, or Joe specifically implemented. I had this idea that it'd be cool to have a system where a message would come in, you'd spawn another thread, it would then look at the current time, the time the message should be uh, sent out, sleep for the delta, and send it on. And then just do that for every message that came in. It seemed like a, a simple design, but obviously if I tried to implement it in, in Ruby, you've got the, the garbage collector kicking in randomly. You've got all sorts of things that may manipulate the time. And so something that's, whereas something like Erlang, you might not have the hard real time guarantees of some hardware or something implemented in much lower language like C or C++ or Rust or something, but actually typically what you care about is, is the jitter is more important than latency. If your system suddenly gets flooded with messages and it all sort of slows down, that's actually a really big problem. And, and so something like Erlang is going to have a, a much better uh, set of performance semantics around that kind of behavior than most of the systems because it was designed to really all let all the messages flow through uh, in a beautiful way and not slow the system down. And then the timing of the messages is really about the sh timing of the schedulers built into to, uh, into Erlang. And on, at least on Mac and Linux, up till a very recent release, they were within sort of 10 milliseconds, which is, for human perception, is, is not too bad. But the Windows ones were much worse. And I sort of have been banging and banging to try and implement, uh, uh, to improve the support for the timing. Because it, it wasn't even for triggering MIDI notes on a synthesizer, which is obviously what I'm trying to do. But even if you were trying to do performance analysis on a Windows machine on the beam, the accuracy of the schedulers was so poor that the results were just not, not usable. I remember a conversation with the Benchy authors about this exact problem and that they had uh, yeah, issues on the Windows side too. And if I remember correctly, the issue was kind of on the Windows platform side, not, necess not necessarily, you know, our Erlang itself, but... Well, no, it's definitely on Erlang's side because they fixed it and they weren't using the right, they weren't using the accurate enough uh, uh, scheduling um, uh, API in Windows and they've switched to that. And I, but this is like a, it's a common thing. I, I've, this is my only bugbear with the Elixir Erlang community. And I, I see it a lot less in the Elixir community than the Erlang community particularly. It's this sort of anti-Windows stance and it sort of very, confuses me considerably. Like, I totally, I'm like, I love my shell. I love my Emacs. I love my TMUX setup. But I mean, like, the same uh, people using whatever system, VS Code or Vim or whatever. Like, uh, I don't really mind. I think just use the tools you want. And I think Windows is a is a really commonly used operating system around the world. And if we're in the mission, well, at least I'm in the mission of trying to find ways to broaden the set of people who might consider programming. Uh, if we're only considering people who use Linux or Macs uh, as our community, then that's actually quite a massive filter already, which I don't think that, is... That's, that's a small percentage of, of users, yeah. So like that's so the Sonic Pi, like if I said I'm only supporting Mac users, that's, that's, not, that's not cool. Loads of schools aren't going to use it, you know? So I think the same should be for considering a programming language and tool set for beginners and onboarding by making it something that works well on the broadest set of of environments, you're going to lower that barrier to entry to a much larger people and hopefully get a, a broader set of people coming and being interested in, in the work you're doing. So I think supporting Windows actually, although no one might run there, or be as foolish as me as running their Elixir Erlang environment in production on a Windows machine, which is essentially what a running Sonic Pi app is, um, it's still, I think, an important thing to do for making sure that tutorials on the internet, something just people can just follow regardless of their platform. I see it too in like meetups and things like that where people are coming and they're currently working in 
a Windows environment, maybe because their workplace requires it and that's what they have or just what that's what they grew up with. And if we want Elixir to be accessible and something that people can approach and be welcomed into, then yeah, we do need to have a little bit more supportive of a mindset of making it a good experience on Windows. So I agree. And I can actually say um, positive things that, that at least from the top of the community, Jose, every time I've, I've mentioned a specific Windows thing uh, with, with Alexa, he's been straight away there to help and support and fix. Uh, and so that's been an amazing thing. So it's, I, I really don't think it's necessarily as prominent in the Alexa community as it is in the Erlang, it's, especially when you look at the, the figures at the top. You mentioned that maybe even Elixir might have a role in the the language that you're writing in. Did I interpret that right? Were you, is that what you're saying? Like that it might actually become in, that you'd write Elixir code instead of Ruby code or some DSL like that? Is is that where you were thinking about going? Well, so yes. I mean, I, I'm going in uh, uh, three directions at once. So one direction is I want to fix Sonic Pi's internals, and I want to implement new features and ideas. And rather than try and spend all that time fixing the technical debt in this current system, which includes really bad implementations of of sort of weird supervision trees in Ruby, a lot of that makes sense to switch that stuff onto the beam. Um, it just directly will port much, much better. And so to re-implement all sort of the core internal algorithms from the bottom to the uh, to the top, which means then that the Ruby syntax should just be a very thin veneer on a bunch of, of remote procedure calls to the, to the beam, uh, which then you should be able to add a similarly small uh, a veneer of Elixir and have a very... And because the, the, the syntax is very similar, I was talking to Jose about some of the differences, but most of them are surmountable. Yeah, we should be able to very simply build uh, uh, something on top. But the, the other direction I'm going is to make something uh, that... I want to solve the problem of, of three three kinds of jamming. One is like jamming on your own, which is just you and a Sonic Pi on a laptop or a PC or something. And that's already something you can do today. Then the one is to make a band of people so you can sort of all be in the same room and jam together. And, and that's about trying to get the Sonic Pies on each computer in time with each other. And that, that's essentially making the, the Erlang and the Elixir ex, uh, executions happen in time, uh, which have also solved now, which is uh, going to be the next release. And then the third problem is to do this in a distributed fashion. So wherever you are, you should be able to jam with your mates uh, and make some cool music. Uh, for that to happen in, I think, an interesting way, you want to be able to send kind of algorithmic structures to each other to be executed, uh, not just events of start, start, but here's sort of a, a, a structural or a form of a baseline, or and and here's a randomization seed to feed into it and use it to generate the riff or the timings and things. I mean, Sonic Pi currently is, is, is um, implemented by sending the raw Ruby to be evolved on the local machine, which is obviously is a huge security hole if you open that up to remote users to send you code to be evaluated. And so uh, and that would be the same for Elixir as well, if it was just pure Elixir. So figuring out a subset of the language that's, that's safe to send across the network to be able to allow people to send sort of algorithmic forms with each other whilst they're jamming, I think is is a really interesting next step. And so Elixir being the implementation language of that and having it be very, very, very close to Elixir, I think is is, is also the a really important uh, sort of next step. When you talk about this distributed way of co- collaborating and doing collaborative uh, creation of music, totally makes sense the way you're describing that. It's like, here is a sequence that I want to kind of put in the scheduler. Uh, as a group of friends, you can do that. And you mentioned earlier that Elixir might play more of a role in the user interface. I was just wondering if Live View is something that you've been considering or playing with as, as fitting any of this uh, that you're talking about now. Oh, absolutely. 100%. So I've been fiddling with Live View now for since since last summer, but only sort of in the periphery. But what I've done is I've, I have, as part of trying to figure all this stuff out is uh, it's Sonic Pi now, uh, no longer, um, so it was originally having its own implementation of the beam that we sort of Joe uh, wrote some cool scripts to take a standard beam, chop out all the bits that we weren't using. Obviously, now that he's no longer available for for support, <laughs> then those scripts to, and, and seem to, to to have sort of a, um, seem to be make much sense to use something that communities are using as a, as a whole. And, and so, looking around, it seemed that Elixir had the best tools with the, with the mixed stuff, so I can make using it to make a mixed release. I've embedded inside of of, of Sonic Pi a full Elixir um, environment. And then also to start considering LiveView as as a potential interface implementation sort of approach, uh, because 
The, the problem with the GUI at the moment is it's implemented in the C++ Qt thing, which is which is very efficient and 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 a really nice, reliable framework with really good accessibility support, and I'm, I'm using all of those things. But the the turnaround for the implementation is is very short. Uh, sorry, long. <laughs> and so it's, and I want something which is much shorter. And so uh, Live View really offers that as a, as a possibility. So in addition to throwing in the mix and and, uh, and using it to generate the release, I've also got the full Elixir in- implementation in there, the, the language in there. And also I pulled in Live View and added a web browser component to the Sonic Pi GUI uh, and then triggered it all up so it automatically spawns the, the beam properly, starts up all of the Live View stuff and, and hooks up to it and links up to it and and uses it as a essentially one of the little windows inside of Sonic Pi is is a is a live view page HTML page, and that's not going to be in the next release. It's just in the betas and in, in a not even in the betas actually in, in in my personal development things. You can if you can clone the source and and switch the flags in CMake, you can turn it on. Um, but it's certainly absolutely where the next phase of development is going to go is to, is to consider how to use Live View to broaden the, the the kind of interfaces that Sonic Pi can expose to users and also as a potential future interface uh, to have the whole thing be implemented in in something like Live View. Is that a feasible thing to do or not? And so that's something I'm, I'm fully going to start exploring uh, as soon as version 4 is released. So you'd mentioned a number of different features that you've been working on with some of the internals and things. Is that what's coming out in version four, like where you're using the Elixir and supervision trees there implemented in in the Beam instead of the version that you'd created yourself in Ruby? Is that what's coming up in version four? Like what what can people look forward to next in these releases? Yeah. So no, no. So in terms of the Elixir stuff, it's just really a reorientation of the foundations of of of, of Sonic Pi's uh, Erlang aspects to uh, to have a, a starting point at Elixir. So Elixir now is the entry point. The Erlang stuff is now called from Elixir. As much as it, I'm trying to make it a standard Elixir environment, a sort of Phoenix Elixir Live View environment, which has a bunch of other Erlang stuff, which creates its own supervision trees, which does all the I/O things that have been in Sonic Pi for, for, for a long time. And then also a couple of NIFs, uh, one NIF to do the MIDI and another NIF, which is the really the, the, the new thing for, for this version, to do this thing called the Ableton Link synchronization. And it's a, it's a toolkit for synchronizing metronomes across apps on different computers on the local network. Uh, and so it's built into a whole ton of, of professional VJ and DJ software, including Ableton Live and tons of iPad apps. And so now this NIF provides that sort of exact service to the Beam and we leverage that to, uh, and I've re-implemented all the internal timing systems in Sonic Pi to, to use this new metronome as, as the core sort of timing structure to allow you then to allow the, the external changes in the BPM to manipulate the, uh, the, the, the execution speed, essentially, of Sonic Pi on multiple computers simultaneously. Um, and so really that's, really that's about solving the problem of how do I make a band in Sonic Pi? I want to have multiple computers where this Ableton Link software automatically finds each other, sets the BPM to be the same, and as long as you write the word link at the top of your code and press run, everything inside, underneath that will be synchronized with all the other computers on the local network that are also running in link mode. So that's that's the main feature of the next version of Sonic Pi is, is this ability to to be able to create Sonic Pi bands. And that's going to be super fun. I can see that being a lot of fun for kids in like a, a classroom workshop type setting where being able to like actually jam together. Totally. That's that's I want to turn those sort of boring beige classrooms into into nightclubs, into algoraves. <laughs> <laughs> that's the goal, right? And I know it's just also just it's just there's loads of things. So I, in my my studio I've got a bunch of synthesizers that all have USB MIDI. And so I have a little Raspberry Pi with a USB hub and I connect them all to the Raspberry Pi and I run Sonic Pi on this on the latest sort of version 4 beta on this Raspberry Pi, which is also connected to the network. Uh, and that's currently by Ethernet, but obviously you can use the Wi-Fi. And then that can act as a bridge that can connect those synthesizers timing via MIDI clock to this Ableton Link stuff. As long as the Raspberry Pi is on the same network as your, as your Mac or your PC that you're jamming with Sonic Pi, you can then jam, you can trigger the synthesizers in time with everything else just from a little Raspberry Pi. And that's just, uh, and that, that's, I think that's where the live view starts to become interesting of having like an iPad or an external laptop or an iPhone or something that can open up the interface to that Raspberry Pi and then start configuring it and controlling it. 
I know from my own personal experience, when you start teaching people something, it is really fun and rewarding just to see the light bulbs go off and to see them get excited about something. Are there any stories or experiences that you can share about how that's been rewarding for you and things you've seen, how this has been successful? Yeah, I mean, I can talk all day about the joy of seeing people unlock the potential of what programming can be to them and to see that as something that's not just an external sort of cryptic, weird thing that's only on the telly to something that's actually meaningful to them and helps them. They can start to see its potential for them to, to express themselves. And I think that's why music is a really great environment to explore this because of those things actually, I think, are a bit, bit easier to get to than it is to get to, to expression. I mean, how many people express themselves through sorting algorithms? <laughs> There's a few, right? There's going to be a few people who really deeply love it and can really talk about the nuances. But I think for as a way, as a tool to, to, to get the broadest set of people sort of resonating, I think that uh, yeah, sorting algorithms are low on my list of things and, and music is, is much higher. And so it's really, yes, yeah, really, really about that. And so, yeah, finding always observing that in the classroom is, is a beautiful thing. But but also, I'm 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 thinking also about how to improve that. How, how do we get children to be engaged? How do we sort of get that spark? And I think going into a classroom with a good teacher who can really engage them is is definitely always the best way. But finding really good teachers that have that sort of sense of of excitement that they can pass on is is, is not always as, as easy as it sounds. And I think that if you even look at the music world, it's not always necessarily the the this excitement of the music teacher which gets children wanting to start an instrument. It's it's use it's seeing their idols perform on stage and seeing the instruments that they're performing with and going, Oh, okay, that's a wooden medallion. What's that? Oh, it's a guitar. Cool. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna play that. You know, once you've seen Jimi Hendrix, you're gonna want to pick up a guitar or Taylor Swift. Um and so I think that we should be in the, at least in the computing world, f- looking for what our idols are that, that are going to inspire that next generation of programmers. And too often I hear Bill Gates and, and, and Steve Jobs being sort of thrown around as, 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 as potential candidates for these idols. And I'm sure they are, but, but to me, they're, they're really, they're idols for people who are able to see a, an opportunity in business and, and really do an amazing job of those things. And, and, and technology and business are obviously very closely interrelated today, just in the way that writing was, and it was very closely related to legal documents and religious tomes hundred years ago. But of course we broke writing free from that. And now we write to-do lists and shopping lists and text messages to each other with emojis. What is the equivalent of that for, for programming? How is society going to use it beyond business? And, and I think we should be using those kinds of questions and answers to drive how we engage that next generation of programmers. And, and so I'm, I'm interested in, in observing and engaging with the, sort of the top people currently using Sonic Pi as, as a performance tool. And so there's a really good example of this as a, as a former in the New York, and she's called DJ Dave, and she's playing huge nightclubs now, all with Sonic Pi. And so I think that when children uh, see people like her performing, doing amazing things, and then they see that the, she's coding... I think that's going to be a much more powerful tool for capturing a child's imagination and getting them motivated to learn uh, and and create those personal moments of, of excitement that you describe, I think, which will, which are, I think, much more powerful and more likely to, to drive their, their learning for a longer time. I need to go watch the talk where that everybody keeps talking about, but is it live coding or do you write up a script like when the, you said this lady's DJing at club a bit these big nightclubs is she like coding live while she's doing it or totally she's a professional programmer <laughs> but she wouldn't describe herself in that way <laughs> she actually did an interesting uh, work of, of integrating and mixing traditional DJing so she has a dex that she's able to do normal DJing but she also has her own tracks that she's produced using Sonic Pi and so she'll crack open the laptop, project that behind a big massive screen or on the ceiling and all sorts of cool places. So the audience can actually see the code that she's writing live in front of the audience. To answer your question more generally, in Sonic Pi, of course, you can just write some code as a composition, which starts at the top of the page and works its way down. And that is a composition. But you can also write these, as I mentioned before, these like weird live loops, uh, which also have this additional property where not only do they, oh, they loops, they spin around and, and they have this concurrency functionality where they can play at the same time. And they have this timing mechanism, this internal thing where they play in time, 
You could also modify their behavior whilst they're executing. And so you can say, okay, the one that's doing maybe the drum bits, I'm going to change change up the drums, I'm going to change the bass, I'm, I'm going to turn this down and turn this up, change the, the reverb on this, change the... And so she's tweaking the code as it's executing, as she's watching the audience uh, uh, respond to it. She's able to bring that feedback back into her performance and modify the code that she's writing as a response to that. Uh, and that's, I think that's super cool and really starts to, I think, challenge and, and open up new uh, opportunities for, for live electronic music, where typically the virtuosity has is, is been in the studio, where people have spent a long time creating polished performances and then going on stage. And there's not necessarily a huge opportunity for improvisation. Whereas with the coding, you can you can do both. You can do a composition where you just press play and, and it all goes, but you can also be in involved in that sort of algorithmic execution and modifying it uh, based on your ideas and thoughts in the moment. And that's yeah, that's the live coding aspect, and that's also really useful for education, for having a simple loop and showing the child what or the learner of any age really what how modifications to the code can can be observed and having something which is repeating which you can modify and see the changes quickly is really is really sort of a very um, enticing way to to learn the the ideas yeah the, that tight feedback like that so you can yeah just learn so quickly but then also in the in a live performance that's got to be a fascinating experience i, I like never experienced you know that before i've also never gone to a dj concert either so <laughs> you should uh, you should book me for one of your conferences <laughs> i'll be only too happy to, to both perform and use the funds to uh, drive further development of sonic Point. <laughs> but yeah but i mean that's i mean i have got i've got finnish people dancing which is uh, if anyone knows uh, the culture of finland is a, is a challenge you know and so that's a <laughs> that's a hard thing <laughs> yeah um actually before they before they had too many uh, uh, alcoholic beverages which is usually is a improves their dancing abilities but um but you know it's so just a joke but getting coders to dance is a really really hard uh, challenge in general and uh and i've i've risen to the challenge a number of times it's it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of fun to see also to perform for, for programmers because they they actually look and stare intently <laughs> at the code and like oh my goodness people are really reading what i'm writing <laughs> and so i'll write can i have a beer please and <laughs> beer comes <laughs> Yeah, can you see? Imagine the live bugs too, and like the the programmers in the crowd be like, "It's on line 13. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that, that's a critical thing. Like, that's another benefit of having the concurrency because you're obviously going to make mistakes. You're going to write typos. You're sweating, and it's all dancing, and you try to type at the same time. You're going to make mistakes, and so if you have multiple threads executing at the same time, the chance of you making mistakes in all those threads simultaneously is much low, uh, much lower. Sorry, and then you, what you typically end up is you break the bass or you break the break the drums just the kick drums left and you're like oh no but the crowd think you've done it on purpose and they're loving it and so it's an opportunity then sort of to build it back up again and take it in the moment but yeah the concurrency acts as a as a, as a safety net as well as a, as a an enabler of of ways of expressing music in a simpler form than trying to weave it manually in in, in the words I, I imagine the art form, uh, I, I forget the name, but what's the art form? I think the Japanese usually do this with broken pottery and they repair it with like the gold on there. There's a word for it where they make art out of broken things. You could see that. I messed up in my live loop, brought it back down just to the base. We're going to repair it artfully and it's going to be okay. <laughs> well, this is where like we mentioned earlier about the synchronization between threads. Like Having innovation there has been crucial because... Tools for creating and starting threads is a simple thing, but you not just want to do that. Once you've broken that thread and it's died, you want to be able to fix the mistake and not just start it. Uh, you want to start it in time with everything else as well. So had to implement ideas for being able to start a new thread to wait for others to be at a particular point in time, synchronize that time, and then continue executing. In the same way, a conductor might go, three, two, one, go. You need the equivalent of that in code. And so yeah, to be able to precisely deal with that situation where a thread might die and you might want to bring it back in time with the executing threads without bringing the whole thing. Because, of course, you could just hit stop, kill everything, <laughs> and then start it again all in time with each other. That's one approach, but that's not going to work particularly well for your audience. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of those devices that like people will play like a baseline and then click a button to repeat it or record it. And then they just like keep going. And they, after a few minutes, they have like this whole thing going on. I've always thought those are pretty entertaining. So I look forward to someone Sonic Pi DJing for me someday. 
But that's exactly it. You know, with, with those looper pedals, and, and, and you can create a very sophisticated, interesting structure with just a few things that are just lapping on top of each other. And in Sonic Pi, those things are live loops, and they could be incredibly simple. And just four or five incredibly simple things together can sound really, really interesting. So, I think I think people are often look listen to the final result and go, "Goodness, this sounds too complicated for me to ever consider making." But actually, the reality can be not always, but can be that that's actually just a, a few simple things blended together in, in an interesting way. Well, many of us are parents ourselves, and we, we have an interest in introducing our children to programming. So I think of those out there, you know, like you, dear listener, who may have kids, and you're like, man, I know I've been this way. Like, I wanted to get my daughters excited about programming, and I have failed. <laughs> they haven't adopted it. But I, I think of a tool like this as something that can make that easier as a parent, just getting a kid to kind of get more excited about it. And then also if there are those of us in the community who perhaps want to get involved with our local schools. So I'm curious about what you would advise for getting started from the, I want to help my kids get excited about this, or I want to help a local group get excited. How can we get involved and get started? That's a very good question. And actually, I think they're two very separate and important questions. And I'll take the second one first, if that's okay. And that's about schools. I think that if, if anyone listening hasn't yet and has some spare hours got involved with the local school and use their, especially if they're listening and they're programming experts, use their programming expertise within a school environment to help the children, then it's an amazing thing, a really valuable social thing uh, for you to spend your time doing. And I really would heartily recommend anyone try and do that because schools are crying out for support, especially when people really know what they're doing. Um, and so uh, a, there can be a big gulf in knowledge between even a professional computer science teacher and a professional computer scientist or a programmer or IT engineer or whatever names that people are calling themselves these days. And so that's that's a really, really important thing. And, and from the perspective of parents, I think at least my observation has been to find the things that the children are personally interested in doing themselves and not even consider programming. And then... From that list of things, try and see if there's a subset of those things which could be touched upon or like leaned on or interacted with or expanded through programming. And if there are those uh, overlaps, then try and explore those uh, first. I think rather than saying to a child uh, or anyone who wants to learn, today you're going to learn programming and not really provide that motivation, I think that's... I think that's a tricky proposition. Uh, I think you've got to sort of give them what that what the value is for them first. They need to somehow have some kind of tacit understanding of what that the benefits of knowing that thing is first almost before they've got the skill. And so if you can make it related to them, and I think that's why music actually for, for many can be, and not, certainly not all, can be that, that, that vehicle because music can motivate and move and sort of really uh, tune into people's uh, uh, way of thinking and being and their positivity and negativity and happiness can, can all be manipulated by music. So I think that music is a really powerful tool for, for doing that kind of, of of interaction between something which is meaningful to the individual and programming, especially when you've got a system which can program the music. But if, but if drawing or, or pictures is, is something that's interesting, there's a ton of other interesting tools that can to, that can allow for that. Or if you want to do sand sculptures might be interesting. Or if Minecraft is interesting, then teaching the children how they can program their own city can be a really, really interesting activity. Or if they like flying things, to, to maybe program a simple drone to fly around. Or finding something they enjoy and figuring out what the programmable parts are there are, if there are any, and then focusing on that would be my would my tactic and, and not to push it too much. So with my children, I they don't really do any programming yet. I mean, the, the oldest is 10, so there's, there's still a chance, but I'm certainly not pushing it. But as soon as they get interested, I'm going to give them all the, the time and support that they ask for, but but certainly no more because I don't, I'm a bit concerned and sort of like, you must learn the programming, it's good for you, might put them off for life. <laughs> so Sam, at the top of the show, you mentioned this idea that you were doing this full-time and that this is something that you're you're being funded for and talking about open source and funding. And I remember seeing something recently about how Jose Valim said that he was being involved in Dashbit or other companies. So what is the funding model like 
That's a really uh, interesting question. I think uh, I'd like to see more discussion of this kind of nature uh, about how open source projects are funded. I, th- I don't think there's a there's a good answer yet to make to, to, that makes it really simple and straightforward. And yeah, and there's also lots of constraints. And I think part of the, the ability to fund it is being in the UK and having uh, access to a health service that <laughs> provides me with free healthcare and I have to worry about insurance. And so that that's number one. I have like a, a social context that can can provide me with the base needs. And then for income, uh, I, I mean, I used to be funded. I used to have I used to work when the project started. I was based at the University of Cambridge uh, and I had funding that was predominantly from the Raspberry Pi Foundation. But as with the nature of all kinds of fundings, often they, they certainly don't last forever. And so you have to keep changing them and manipulating them and and I also, with certainly with the, within the education system, with the universities, finding ways to, to deal with not having to, to have all this extra work you get from applying for grants just seemed not to be worth the sort of the ratio between continuing to work on a project like Sonic Pi or going back and being a professional developer and earning, earning a professional sort of uh, a salary. I've always been toying with how do I uh, how do I how do I attempt to get a professional salary whilst not having to uh, deal with all the issues with, with traditional sort of uh, grant funding schemes, at least it, as it is in, in universities or in, in charity organisations. And so, the approach I've taken that's working sort of okay so far, but and it's managed I guess to survive the pandemic, which is probably a pretty good test. It is to try and diversify the streams as much as possible. So before I was relying on one funder, and when that money was pulled, that then left me in a very precarious situation. So currently I'm, I'm using Patreon as as a way of doing that, which is providing half my income. And so I have something like 700 people really kindly donating a small number of dollars a month, which of course then adds up to a, to a useful number of dollars for me to be able to, 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 to buy food for my family. And then the other half of the income comes from delivering talks and workshops and performances, especially recently. I've been doing a lot of physical and online virtual performances where I'm, I'm either uh, demonstrating Sonic Pi and then doing a performance with it or going straight into a, a full uh, nightclub set to provide a party experience, projecting the code, displaying what I'm doing uh, so that the audience can, can get involved and be part of that, that sort of moment. That's also uh, contributed to half uh, of my income. So the two together uh, have been crucial. But uh, earlier this year, uh, I think I think largely because the pandemic really uh, restricted my ability to do any physical performances, and that's typically where a large amount of that revenue that made up half my salary came from. I sort of tweeted with sort of like a concern, saying I'm basically out of my funds. I'm, I'm what do I do? I need to, uh, if you're going to hire me, now is the time to, to, to turn up. And uh, Jose was really kind and has offered me a six months part time uh, sponsorship, which has uh, bridged that difficult period and, and now I'm back with a bit more safety net and feeling a bit more assured that things can continue. So yeah, it's just a tricky thing, I think, funding an open source project and, and finding the willpower to continue whilst also dealing with the uncertainty of, of, of that financial risk, especially when you've got a family, uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to, to balance. And yeah, I, I seem to be okay now, but who knows? And so I'm always uh, uh, interested in, in any opportunities to, to deliver talks or workshops to companies or if companies Companies want to sponsor the work I'm doing and see the value of of, of focusing on education, focusing on, on children and ten-year-old kids, particularly making sure that, that every part of the system is simple enough for a ten-year-old child, whilst also making sure the system is powerful enough as an expressive tool, an expressive instrument for professional performance, because I think they are, they're going to be those iconic figures that drive that next generation of programmers to, to actually start uh, and to, to get going. And I think that yeah, there's a the excitement I have is, is on the focus on Elixir, on concurrency, and seeing what, what live you can do as, as an interface uh, sort of uh, platform. There's really, there's a lot of opportunities there for some exciting things. And so another way to help out would be if individuals who can program, especially with Elixir and LiveView, want to get involved. I'm, I'm super happy to to get involved and, and to, to figure out what, what you can do to help, because it's going to be a ton of fun stuff to work on. Yeah, so that leads into, the, I think, the next question, which is, how, where should people go if they want to contribute? They want to get involved, They either from the Elixir aspect or just like from, you know, contributing to this interesting project that deals with music production and, and education. Where should they go? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, we have a we are, we we do all our stuff. It's open source, obviously. It's on GitHub, so you can start to peruse the code there. Uh, we have you can try and install it. 
or build it locally and see if see if you can do that. And then if you have any issues building it, of course, then we can we can support that and serve you there. And then if you've got ideas for functions and, and functionalities you want to build, then that's something to have a discussion with. So you can either open an issue on GitHub and and sort of describe what it is you think you might want to build and and why, or you can uh, approach us. We have a nice forums, which is the, there are links inside the Sonic Pi app to go to. It's called InThread, where we have a nice Sonic Pi community. So you could you could discuss your idea there as well. And and really just it's just yeah just just finding ways to communicate with people. So like uh, Twitter is a good, it's a good place just to throw questions. And if you happen to include the word Sonic Pi, the chances of me finding it are very high. And then I'll engage with that directly as well. So yeah, I think or or of course you can just yeah directly DM me if and, and if my box isn't too full and I manage to see it, I'll be able to reply to that as well. Um, but yeah, I think GitHub probably is the the best place for those, that kind of uh, conversation. But we're really open open. Uh, and if you've got ideas for how to improve it, I think I think that management of software projects projects is another interesting thing, especially open source projects. I'm not the best manager in the world. So if you've got ideas of how to improve the management process and how we can do, do this onboarding and, and, and get more people started, I'm also very interested to hear your ideas too. Very cool. So it sounds like uh, we'll have links to uh, where people can find you on Twitter and the project on GitHub and everything like that in the show notes. I've just been really enjoying this time to talk with you, Sam. Really fascinating. I, I love the idea of education and getting the next generation of people interested in programming. And not just because, oh, my parents said that's the career path I should take because it's a good job, but because they actually really find enjoyment in it. I think that discovery happens when you're young, especially. Uh, it can be very impactful. Yeah. I mean, I didn't use the analogy. I often, when I give a talks, use the analogy of, of sports in that sense that no one does sports at school to be a professional sports person. I mean, some people do, but the majority of people do sports because it has all these extra benefits. And I think that coding has, will have similar benefits that we really are yet to discover, probably. And I think that we should, yeah, that we should be focusing on, on, on finding those rather than just what are the business values to be extracted from programming, which we're doing, we've already done to death and we're doing, still continuing to do. And I don't think that's going to stop, but I don't think exploring that question is necessarily going to help us engage that next generation or uh, uh, at least people who aren't like us. I think that's uh, who wouldn't necessarily personally find the stuff interesting from an intrinsical interest. Like I am drawn to programming people. You want everyone else to have a bit of a go. Now, I love that idea of like the sports analogy, because I've met doctors who code on the side because they find it enjoyable and it helps solve some problem they have with their practice. You know, it doesn't have to be your job to be able to be interesting and fun and help you and, and serve a purpose for yourself. Totally. Or you could be even like, even if you're coding for fun, like the doctor, but not necessarily building anything that actually has any value. So you're maybe you're doing the, those Christmas uh, programming quizzes where you're sort of solving those problems like every day and you're doing that over one and one a month or something. And you're really taking a long time and you're learning how to do it or you know, as I do to, to make some music, in which case you pretty much always throw the code away. Like you're not necessarily creating something uh, an asset that you're that's valuable. It's just a process of of playing and tinkering with it is can be an interesting thing. So yeah, you mean you don't unit test your live performances? <laughs> I do have actually a background uh, process which will uh, create a local git commit for every time I press the run button. And so I have a history of the performance, but it's I can't use it to replay it yet. That's that's something I think that's a really interesting feature to work on in the future is to be able to do a performance and then provide the audience with a URL which has a link to the sort of a persistent data structure representing what I did that they can then use to feed into their Sonic Pies to recreate it. It'll be a fun sort of sort of endpoint to get to. <laughs> I could see that. That's really cool. Well, thank you, Sam. This has been a really fun discussion. And I know you recently spoke at the ElixirConf EU. Uh, and when those videos come out, we'll make sure to share that. I'm also speaking at the uh, FP conference. That's the one that's in the same organizers. That's um, that's also got Elixir people going. What's it called again? Functional something. That's in um, Krakow in Poland. It's not Lambda Days, is it? Lambda Days. That's the one. Yeah. Lambda Days. So it's the academic-y, business -y one. Yeah, that, that uh, Lambda Days is a great one for being cross-language, just functional programming in general. Yeah, that's the one. I'm speaking there. So I mean, I'll be doing pretty much the same talk, but a bit more academic. Put my PhD hat on. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Sam. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.